are entering the Freedom Hut. Buck is back from travels with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo abroad in Latin America. I have an exclusive interview with the Secretary of State tonight. Plus, still a bunch of fights at home on the political front. We'll get into that and oh so much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I missed you all. I know I say that whenever I've been out for a few days, but I mean it, and it's true. Although I was happy to hear that my friends uh, Raheem Kassam and Ben Weingarten did a did a great job, as they always do, guest hosting here in the Freedom Hut. Man, it was quite a trip. So I, I wanted to, uh, if you would indulge me, give you uh, a full rundown. I, I want to bring you alongside the Buckster. And apologies for the third third person stuff. But I want to bring you into the trip and the insights as much as, as possible because uh, there was there was a lot of a lot of interesting stuff that went down here, and uh, then we'll get into some new news of the day and uh, the biggest stories and you know oh my gosh Mueller's testifying on Wednesday and Democrats in Congress still think Trump is a racist I promise we'll get to all that that's we'll have, we have we have plenty of time for that so just by way of uh, of preparation for our discussion about the trip, I would just say that you have to remember that not only am I a conservative media personality, I I kept having to sit in seats marked press on this trip, which made me feel, ooh, I don't know, not really press. Uh, But I'm also a former CIA analyst. And so that's, there's a, a healthy and sometimes maybe unhealthy rivalry slash skepticism the CIA has of some of the other federal agencies it's an institutional thing it's almost like rival schools but man do we have certain views of the state department and uh those they are they are rooted largely in fact (laughs) i can tell you that there's not a lot of surprises with all with all that for at least for me on this trip uh it is very hierarchical it is very bureaucratic uh people really where you fall on the on the spectrum of how senior you are, it, it determines where you sit and who gets fed first and who it's there's a lot of stuff that you just have to say, OK, you know, I mean, I, I was on a plane. I'm somebody who, you know, had a had a uh, TS clearance for for many years and I was on a plane. And I was told, well, you can't go ahead of this bulkhead area where these two bathrooms are, you're not allowed to go. And I said, but that's not a skiff or anything. It's just, they're just, our State Department employees are, yeah, yeah, but you can't, not allowed to go up there. <laughs> oh, okay. I've kind of, kind of roped off back here. That's an interesting, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting that. But no, it was, it was a, it was fascinating to get to see, even though I've spent a lot of time around the federal government, in the federal government, and then interviewing various uh, senior, senior figures, particularly of this administration, uh, seeing this diplomacy in action and also the countries we went to and the issues that were tackled are of high interest. I mean, this this was a trip where some of the primary uh, foreign partners we have on the migrant crisis were visited and there were discussions about that. 
There was also a lot of talk about the drug trade, which reminds me, our friend Yon Grillo is going to join to discuss where the drug trade is right now. This really ties into the migrant crisis and also some of my travels. You know, Yon's been in Mexico City for almost 20 years now covering the cartels and, and all of Latin American, what is effectively Latin American organized crime. We always think of it as, as cartels, but there's something a little bit, uh, you know, it's very similar to uh, what you would think of as organized crime. So now let's get into the actual trip itself. I flew down to Buenos Aires, which I have to tell you is a very long flight. Um, Buenos Aires is, is quite a ways away from here. About, uh, I think it was about 11 hours in the air. So just if you're thinking about going down there, the upside is that there's no time change. So you arrive there and you, whatever time that you've been awake is, you, know, the, you don't have to adjust eight hours one way or six hours another way. There's no jet lag. So I will say that's a very nice thing about traveling in Latin America is jet lag is not an issue. But Buenos Aires is really far. Buenos Aires is a city that I had always wanted to go to because I had been told, and now I know I'm, I'm getting a little bit into the travel guide side of this, but we'll get into the migrant crisis and important stuff in a second. But it's a city that was built for an empire that never existed. That's one of the one of the quips about Buenos Aires. And what I would say is it's clear a lot of European uh, European immigrants to South America figured, hey, let's set up a European style city here. And because I think one in three, I was told, uh, Argentinians are of Italian descent. So it's a very high proportion of Argent of uh, Italian immigrants to Argentina over the years. Also a lot of Germans. So you're familiar with that. And it, it's a city that is very beautiful, but not very functional, meaning there's a there's tremendous economic uh, discontent, a lot of problems. And it's because they tried to build a, a European social welfare state without the wealth to support it. So it's it's a cautionary tale in its own way, because there's no reason for Argentina to be as economically depressed as it is there's no reason other than socialism and which is a very big reason i guess but there's nothing you know this isn't a country that lacks for natural resources or natural beauty and and it's it's just frustrating to be somewhere that is is quite charming and i can tell you i had i had a steak that was worthy of i'm gonna say at any steakhouse i've been to in america and and a delicious argent argentinian red wine and and a couple of sides, and I think it ran me 25 bucks, the whole thing. I mean, it's... So if you like steak and red wine, you are in very good shape in Argentina. Uh, but if you are trying to find an economy that is dynamic and a lot of things are going on, not so much. They, they have a long a long way to go. Uh, but it was a, a trip down there that I found interesting. We visited the... This was the counterterrorism portion, actually, of the trip, where we visited the Jewish Community Center that was bombed 25 years ago the day before we arrived. Um, so it was a commemoration of that, of that bombing, the deadliest terror attack in Argentine history and the deadliest Islamist terror attack or jihadist terror attack, I believe, in the history of South America. There have been other terror attacks, notably the Pablo Escobar downing of an airliner, I mean, where the body counts were higher. Uh, but this was a horrific terror attack on a Jewish community center. So we were there for that. And then there were discussions about 
uh, counterterrorism cooperation and how and this is where I'll be the South American portion of the counterterrorism fight is a little bit of a it's a secondary a secondary concern at best. Uh, they're really trying to prevent Hezbollah financiers uh, from getting a foothold. They're trying to stop. There's some stuff that goes on in the tri-border area of South America, but not on the terror stuff. So anyway, we spent a couple of days in Argentina. Uh, high, if you if you want a beautiful place to go check out where you the dollar goes pretty far, Buenos Aires is lovely. The people are very the people are really charming and, and I like them. Uh, so that was nice. All right. So then we flew up to Ecuador. And we didn't spend a lot of time in Ecuador. Uh, I did not even I did not even really get a, a great Ecuadorian meal going. Uh, we were in Ecuador because it was the first time, I believe, in eight years that a U.S. Secretary of State had uh, been to that country. So it's been a long time since Secretary of State's visited Ecuador. And this was part of a theme, though. And this is important. We were like, Buck, why are you telling us about this? What, what do we take away from this part of the trip? Argentina has a government that is very much uh, trying to use capitalist principles now and reform and be close to the Trump administration, the United States government. They want to be partners. They want to be buddies, which is a shift. So they've turned away from the left, away from socialism toward a better working relationship with the Trump administration. Same thing in Ecuador. They've taken a they've taken a, a turn. They've taken a shift. Uh, away from the leftists and away from the 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 Marxist political infection of South America and gone toward a more friendly to North America, friendly to U.S. interests point of view. And they're very they're a very important partner, mostly in the drug trade. A lot of uh, the drug trade moves through Ecuador. It's, it has coastal cities that are ports that are very, uh, very much trafficked in by uh, heroin and, and cocaine. And so we need them for the counter narcotics fight. Only concern that came up when I was there uh, in terms of geopolitics is that the Ecuadorians are a little too chummy with China. China is doing way more in Ecuador than a lot of people realize. I think they're their biggest lender. And this is in keeping with China's policy around the world, which is they're trying to throw around money to developing countries, get access to natural resources and create allies all over the place so that they have more strategic depth for their mercantilism the chinese mercantilism that's going on so ecuador is pretty quick though not a whole lot of uh, not a whole lot to get into there then then i went to mexico city and in mexico city i also interviewed secretary of state pompeo which will will air that interview for you first time exclusively at the top of the uh, next hour so around 7 7.05 Eastern, we'll be airing that interview. It's definitely, we cover the migrant crisis, Iran tensions. Uh, we cover China negotiations, North Korea nuclear negotiations, Venezuelan regime fighting, uh, a lot of really interesting stuff we, we get into. So please do uh, stay around, stay around for that interview. But in Mexico City, I've never been to Mexico City before. I've been to Mexico a few times. Mexico City is vast. As you fly into it, you are reminded of its enormous population and just just the landmass that it covers. And I forgot that it's at two things. One is that it's at such a high elevation, so people sometimes can get altitude sickness there. I did not. And the other is well, I knew this. 
There you go. The water is non-potable. I just, I don't think you can be a developed, and I know Mexico is still considered a developing country. It's not third world. It's really in that second tier of, of up-and-comers along with countries like Brazil. and uh, But, you know, we should have potable water in the tap. I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a believer in this because it's not a poor country. And when you're there, when you're in Mexico City, you see, a tr- I mean, it's, it's a vast city, but it also has a tremendous amount of, of gleaming brand new construction and all these major American corporations. And I mean, it's, it's a truly global, huge city. So it's not a poor country. It just needs to be less corrupt, have better infrastructure and have a better working relationship, I would say, with the United States on, on a whole bunch of issues, including the migrant crisis, which, as we now know, the Mexican government has said that they will not give us. We did not know this. And I tried to get this. Well, I don't want to preempt my own interview here, but it did come down today that the Mexican government's not going to give us a safe third country agreement. Right. That would mean that people that transit Mexico to claim asylum in the United States would stay in Mexico, which would in turn take away a huge component, a huge incentive for those transiting because they say they want to claim asylum just so they can skip the line for immigration and stay here. If they had to stay in Mexico, the central predominantly, but not entirely Central American migrants, then they wouldn't want to come across Mexico anymore and go through all this because there wouldn't be the real benefit, which is not asylum. It's just easy access to the interior of the United States. Mexico has denied us that as of today. But they're working with us on some other things. I asked Pompeo about this question specifically, so I I want you to hear his answer, but I need you to stay around until uh, the next hour for that. So uh, I'm not going to get into the interview with Pompeo because I'm going to play it for you, but I learned some very interesting things about Trump administration policy. Uh, But clearly, as you know, I, I just have a thing. You should be able... In a country that has the resources of Mexico, you should be able to drink the water out of the tap safely. I'm not saying it has to taste great. It should be safe. And it's not. It's not potable. There's signs all over the place. Water is not potable. I know that seems small, but to me, it's it's indicative of there's something wrong here. This, this place needs to get its act together a little bit on some of these issues. So we're in Mexico City, major meeting between Secretary Pompeo uh, at the at the embassy there and his Mexican counterpart. And we shall see what ended up happening in the next hour on that. And then we went to El Salvador. You know, this was, for me, in many ways, the highlight of the trip as a travel experience with the Secretary of State, which, look, it's a cool thing, right? Everywhere we go, is it's you're, you're in a moving news story, essentially. Every city you go to, every meeting you're sitting in, press spray, press uh, avail that you go to is... Every single one of them is is historic in a sense, or at least is part of the news cycle. So you're you're a traveling news show. It would be like being out on the campaign with a major with a major political campaign, right? I mean, you're always in the news, and seeing that happening was a very worthwhile experience. It allows me to bring another layer of understanding and and context to what I do here for you every day, which is talk for three hours about everything that's going on in the world. So that part of it was very cool from a. Just a, a travel perspective, Buenos Aires is very charming. The food's amazing. There's a lot of very uh, very appealing locals. It's a very nice place. Um, but for me, politically, El Salvador was the single most interesting experience of the time I spent with Pompeo's team. 
We had a long and very insightful press conference with the president of El Salvador. I will tell you what he and we and talked about the migrant crisis, about what's going on at the border. I mean, issues that are at the forefront of this show and, and the most important news stories in the country right now. I will tell you what the president of El Salvador had to say and why it matters so much. But I'll do so in just a few moments. So, team, I'm back from my travels with Secretary Pompeo. Very, very interesting stuff. We've got the interview with Pompeo coming up at the top of the next hour. So please do stick around for that. Definitely want you to hear what the Secretary of State had to say. I, I did tell him, I'll tell you this before the interview, I, I said to him, you know, sir, I'm, I was disappointed. I didn't get the chance to work for you at the CIA. And, you know, he had a he had a good laugh. We talked a little bit about, you know, Langley stuff, which was which is fun. Uh, and then then we got right into the meat of the interview. Uh, but I'm I think that Secretary Pompeo is is absolutely first class. I think he's a fantastic pick. I thought that before he was secretary of state, based on what I knew of him from when he was CIA director, because all of my friends who are still on the inside, uh, had very positive things to say about Pompeo. They said that he's a very, a very good guy uh, and really knows his stuff. So we'll get to that interview in a little bit. But let me tell you about my my uh, my time, my the portion of this trip with uh, with the secretary's team in El Salvador. Now, El Salvador is a very poor country. It's a country that has had a drop in the last four years or so in its homicide rate of 50%, which sounds great until you find out that it still has one of the highest per capita homicide rates in the world. The gang violence in El Salvador makes it one of the most violent places on planet Earth. It's a small country of about 6 million people in Central America, which is obviously one of the major contributors to the migrant crisis currently going on at our southern border. It's one of the three northern triangle countries, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. So I went to one of these northern triangle countries, sat in meetings with the, uh, sat in, in the meeting, uh, the, the press uh, meeting with the Secretary of State and the President of El Salvador. And he said some stuff. It was very interesting, very surprising. He's a young guy, by the way. I think he's about my age. He looks looks slick, kind of looks like a hipster, actually, and he speaks excellent, uh, fluent English, and I'll tell you what he said in a moment. I did get to finally try guacamole with crickets in it when I was in Mexico City. That's right, guacamole with crickets. A little, little chirp, chirp, crickets. Uh, they taste a little bit like if you took this skin. This is going to sound a little weird, but those of you who are soft-shell crab connoisseurs know exactly what I'm talking about. If you took the skin of a soft shell crab and made it after you'd cooked it and made it into a little cricket shape, that's kind of so it's good. I mean, I got to tell you, the cricket was pretty good. I didn't know that it was a, a something you put in guacamole, but, you know, protein and stuff. So that was an in, that was a little interesting something, something that happened, too. So I had crickets in my guacamole um, and some very nice mezcal margaritas. It was fun to be in a place, especially in, in Mexico, where you open up the menu and you say what mezcal do you have and they basically could say senor what mezcal do we not have Ooh, i like this all right back to serious stuff el salvador a few things to note about the country i mentioned to you that the murder rate is among the highest in the world that's also the country that gave us ms-13 right although ms-13 really started in the united states in the el salvadoran community the diaspora here from el salvador uh 
it's it's also very active there. There are other gangs now that are fighting for fighting with MS-13, and you can tell that the country is very economically depressed. Uh, it has been ruined by uh, economically by socialism. All, all these countries, Latin America, has suffered terribly because of socialism, Marxism, social justice. Uh, it's done terrible things to hundreds of millions of people, generations. It's not just Cuba, which has been clearly destroyed by communism. Uh, the rest of Latin America that has adopted socialism at different times has had to deal with the consequences of it. And that's certainly the case in El Salvador. And I know we could talk about Reagan and, and the 80s and, and what was going on in Central America with the, with the communists and everything else. But for now, just note that when I was there, I, I thought this was an interesting way to get a sense of how what kind of shape the country is in. I did a little search online in the entire country. And this is a, it's a place with beautiful weather. It's very beautiful when you look at it, when you're there. Uh, you can tell it's third world. I and mean, some of you have spent time in the third world know that whenever you have uh, animals wandering unpenned around, that's usually a sign that you're off in it. You know, cows and donkeys and goats just walking across the roads everywhere. And they, you know, that that's generally not what you find in first world countries. I mean, there that was not the case in certainly in Buenos Aires. And I'm talking about right outside of San Salvador, the, the, the capital of El Salvador. I'm not talking about the, out in the countryside. Just kind of animals wandering around, tin tin roofs and, and shanties. You'll see that there. But they're the, the, in, the indicators of a, of a third world uh, country, for sure. And, and that's very much the case. But I, I looked and I said, well, what would be the most expensive hotel room in this country that I could find? I could not find in the entire country a hotel room that costs more than $100. Which for when you those of you that spend any time traveling in Mexico, the Caribbean, I mean, you can find any of these countries. You can find a you know a expensive place to stay in Haiti. I mean, you can. There are a lot. There are a lot of countries that are very economically depressed, but there have been some efforts, and there has been some history of of prosperity, or there's some development that's occurred where they still uh, you know have have pockets of prosperity or pockets of wealth in the country. I just thought that was really interesting. And it has all of this coastline. And yet, you know, all, all of this, this beautiful, beautiful beach that you could go to. And there's really no beach resorts. Now, I'm not just saying, oh, Latin America should all just be one big beach resort. But this is a small country. It's on the ocean or on the water. And it's, you know, completely economically underdeveloped. Well, why? Because it's the crime rate so high. I think it's quite clear they probably couldn't protect the tourism industry if it really had a tourism industry. Okay, so that's the circumstance. You have people that are fleeing this country, uh, that are fleeing this country because they feel like there's no economic hope. And that's when you're there. That's a, that's an understandable, an understandable thing to uh, to believe. Um, so yeah, I mean it is. Of course, it is on the on the ocean. Did I say water ocean? I meant yeah. So it is. A, a country that you can understand why there's so much uh, desperation. And then we had the president speak to us. Now, the president's this young guy named Naib Bukele. I believe he's uh, of half Palestinian extraction. And, and he stood up and he said things that I could tell the liberal reporters in the room, which was basically everybody except for me and a fellow radio host who was traveling with me, uh, who, who I had a lot of fun with, by the way, Larry O'Connor, great guy, 
Great guy. Larry O'Connor is uh, uh, another radio host. Um, he's uh, we had a lot of we had a lot of fun together. We drank together. We we exchanged stories. We had fun. So anyway, President Nayib Bukele stood up and said things like, uh, "We can't force them, the United States, to give us free money." He said asking for handouts was tacky. He said that they share goals and that the United States wants to help us in our goals, but the problem starts with us because we are sending them migrants. Wow. He said that the issue, and now I'm not quoting anymore, but the issue is effectively why do we want it? why is this America's problem? We we should be saddened as a country that we're in such bad shape that our own people don't want to stay here and that's on us meaning that's on salvadorans that is on the people on the government of this country that that we would have people fleeing here no one's about to invade el salvador it's not going through a famine it didn't just get hit by an earthquake they just don't want to be there because there's no hope there's no future in being there and that's on them it was just so interesting now you could say buck he's saying what he thinks pompeo wants to hear or oh that's that's not really what they think all i'm telling you is that the expectations in uh, in that room were for this guy to say we really need to get that foreign aid back remember trump said no more foreign aid for some of these countries cut off hundreds of millions of dollars in foreign aid president bukele stood up of el salvador and said they've given us billions of dollars of aid over decades what has it done for this country? The room was shocked. This isn't what we're, this isn't what Latin American leaders are supposed to say. They're supposed to say the Yankees ruined our country. They're supposed to say, oh, it's imperialist America. That's why we have all these problems. We're not supposed to hear from a leader of a Latin American nation that says, you know, this is on us, guys. And they want to help us solve the problems. Maybe we should stop pretending they, the United States, are the problem. This guy was a breath of fresh air. It was amazing. The room was shocked. I'm there with, you know, reporters, the Washington Post and the Voice of America. And, you know, there's like AP and Agence France Press and you know, blah, all these different. I don't even know who's in the room other than the first couple I knew. I mean, there's all these different reporters, all in local press in there. And they're all, oh, what is this guy saying? A country can't blame itself for its own bad decisions. We have Americans to blame instead. It was such a shift in thinking. Now, on the foreign policy side of this administration, you often don't hear this, but there has been a willingness with this president, who I know the media and especially the the international media, the foreign policy focused media, I, I know that they think um, that this president is, is boorish and unrefined and incapable of thinking strategically. Look at the results, though. There's been this whole change in outlook among a host of Latin American countries toward more positive and closer relations with the United States. And part of it is that we have a president who says now, you know what, the old way of just sending you checks and apologizing all the time, that's not going to continue. If nothing else, it does not get us what we want. We're not just giving money to these countries. This is this is not supposed to be charity. It's supposed to be foreign aid to help them be better partners with us. And when a country like El Salvador can't stop hundreds of thousands of its people 
from leaving, traversing other countries, coming into our country, falsely claiming asylum because they're really economic migrants. Maybe we should consider not just throwing more money at them. And maybe there should be some sense of responsibility on their side. Here is a tiny, impoverished Latin American nation that at least at the leadership level was willing to have or willing to show more of a sense of accountability and autonomy. And with that, the self-respect of facing facts than you'd see in a whole bunch of much larger, wealthier countries all over the world that love to point the finger at America and say, oh, they're the, they're the reason that we have all these problems. They're the reason that things cannot seem to get any better here. It's just not true. How does El Salvador become a place that you would, be, you would want to visit? Because right now I couldn't tell you that you should visit. It's not safe and there's, not, there's nothing there. It's not good. There's not a, a thriving tourism industry. The, you know, there, there's not a lot of foreign investment because you would be putting your dollars in a place where who knows what's going to happen. Who knows what the next presidency would be like? Or even if this presidency will follow through on its promises. But I can tell you this. The president's approach of let's deal in reality and stop just doing what we've been told to do all along by the so-called smart set in diplomacy. It's already working. It's already showing more results than what you would have seen. I, I, I just, as an aside, folks, seeing Mike Pompeo work the room, talk to people, work with allies, and just the ability that this individual, I mean, he's, look, he was first in his class, and I'm going to sound like the Pompeo amen course here, but the guy was first in his class at West Point of a thousand cadets, went to, went to Harvard, started a business, was a congressman, was CIA director, you know, was a member of the United States military, you know, served in the uniform, see him out there doing this stuff. And then just to think of what it would have been like to have, to be on the plane with Hillary years ago as she was doing this and with the hacks that she surrounded herself with. I'm, I'm sure that some of the, the savvier Latin American leaders are like, okay, well, this is now the serious team that has arrived. Pompeo is a serious person. Hillary is a nightmare on a whole bunch of levels, and the people around her were jokes when it came to foreign policy, knowledge, understanding, and vision. So there has been this, there has been this change. It's not one you're going to hear about much in the press. It's not one you're going to hear about much from the rest of the media, but I'm here to tell you that Pompeo is the A-team. I mean, these guys know when it comes to foreign policy. These guys know what they're doing. They understand how to pursue the president's goals. The president gives them a very free hand to operate. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm very critical of the sclerotic, ossified bureaucracy of the State Department because I think it does need to be shaken up. But that's going to take a long time. It's been around forever. Right? Presidents come and go, but the department is forever. That's their unofficial motto. They are way too hierarchical. It's way too stuffy. And, oh, you know, this person and that person, you know, they... They they have it's it's almost like they have a paramilitary organization where everyone's just sitting around, you know, drinking tea and eating crumpets all the time. Like they don't need to be a paramilitary organization because they're really just talking <laughs> that other part of it doesn't doesn't need to be there. Uh, so the, the State Department itself, there's a lot that I think I think should just be changed institutionally and attitudinally. But Pompeo and his team, the senior people that I saw in action that I got to talk to and speak on and off the record, and they're pursuing this president's objectives and they're turning Latin America 
into a direction that will be far more positive for them and for us. Now, are they going to solve the migrant crisis? The real linchpin into all that is Mexico. Now, Mexico is not a small country that's just been racked by socialism for a long time and, and had, you know, has very little in, the, in terms of resources. I don't know if El Salvador could stop the migrant crisis even if it wanted to. They just don't have state resources to throw at this. And remember, it's, it's, they got to traverse. It's like a two-hour car ride to get out of El Salvador into Guatemala for most of the folks there. It's a 1,000 miles across Mexico to get the U.S.-Mexico border. So there's a lot more room for Mexico to do something about this than there is for El Salvador or, or for Guatemala first and then for El Salvador. Um, you know, Guatemala and then for Mexico. So I do think that this is uh, a, a, a turning point in our relationship with the region. I don't know if it'll be permanent. I don't know how long it will last, but there has been a, a change in an attitude. Um, Mexican government still being a little, because they have a little more leverage. They know there's a large uh, Mexican uh, diaspora community in the United States. They know that there's a lot of border trade. There, there's a lot more leverage for the Mexican government, but Trump's got leverage too. So anyway, this, this, still, I just wanted to share with you as much as I could, you know, on today's show. And if you have any other questions or any other thoughts about this, by all means, email me or, or send me a Facebook message. But it was uh, well worth it to have this experience of seeing diplomacy and action in this way and i really enjoyed it and i want to thank the team that brought me out there too and thanks secretary of state pompeo oh but we're not done because i got a pompeo interview coming up and then we'll get into the news of the day and oh don't think i haven't thought about the squad folks and trump and fighting with them and don't we're gonna dig into it because that's still good guess what they're still gonna be fighting with trump tomorrow i i assure you that's not going away there's still going to be all kinds of oh trump is a racist tomorrow I thought today we spent a little more time on the trip. Foreign policy, we don't do it. Uh, Iran, I know they seized this British, uh, this this British ship. People are very concerned. This it would just expect this continued misbehavior from Iran for for a while. Uh, but they actually don't have. If we're going to talk about foreign policy, I felt like I should mention this. The Iranians don't have the time here. Time is not on their side. Their economy is imploding. They are feeling the pain. Grabbing a ship here or there, that's just optics. That's just trying to to quiet their critics internally and trying to see if they can rattle us and our European allies and create divisions and separations. Grabbing a ship here or there is not going to get the Iranians out of the bind they're in now. Remember, the fundamental mistake the Obama administration made was, oh, the Iranians are under so much pressure, let's bail them out now and give them a lifeline of a deal that's way too favorable for them. That was the mistake they made. This administration will not do that. We've got the Pompeo interview to talk about in a moment. Then I've got, uh, what is it, this um, this woman who made a race hoax charge about being in line with too many items and all this. I'll get into that. Uh, we got Yon Grillo. We've got, a, we've got a fantastic show. I know more Latin America today than we usually do as well, at least south of Mexico, but... I was just there, so I figured, why not? We'll be right back. So, indeed, I was traveling all over Latin America on the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo's plane. Saw some fascinating stuff and talking to you about it today on the show. I had the chance to sit down one-on-one with Secretary Pompeo yesterday in Mexico City, right before he went into some very high stakes and important discussions with the Mexican government about migration as well as other issues. Here is the full interview for your listening enjoyment. All right, Buck Sexton here with the Buck Sexton Show. We are joined by Secretary of State Mike 
Pompeo. Mr. Secretary, we are here in Mexico City. Thank you so much for your time. Buck, it's great to be with you. So let's start with the migration crisis, if we can. What needs to be done by our Mexican counterparts to meet the Trump deadline? What have they done so far? And where are there still some areas that might need to be further negotiated? So we're now uh, just about 45 days after the agreement that the State Department worked out with uh, Marcelo Ebrard and his ministry, foreign ministry here in Mexico. We've made real progress. Uh, there's a whole lot more enforcement on the Mexican side, both on their southern border and increased enforcement on their northern border as well. Uh, we now have processes, the migrant protection uh, protocols and plan uh, that are being executed. And it, is, it has reduced the number of uh, illegal transits coming across our border. Uh, but it's still too high. There's there's still more work that needs to be done. We we need to do this cooperatively. We need to find uh, methodologies. There's no silver bullet, but we need to create a model that deters these people from taking this track, which is so dangerous and so uh, uh, so harmful to so many people leaving the Northern Triangle and transiting through Mexico. What is the status of the safe third country agreement right now with Mexico? Do you think it will hold? People are talking about a possible court challenge, and is the Mexican government committed to continuing to hold migrants as they try to cross through and make their way to the United States. So I'm going to talk to Foreign uh, Minister Bar today about uh, the Safe Third Agreement, about all the other elements of the combined plan as well. Hey, people tend to focus on one thing at a time. In fact, uh, it's going to be a series of things that deliver this outcome. American sovereignty, American protection at its border. It's going to take more work on our side as well. So there are many pieces to this puzzle. I, I just, when folks single out a particular document or a particular theory of how we're going to stop this, I always caution them that this is a, a challenging problem. We have to be aggressive on every front. Is the Mexican government sufficiently committed to helping us in this? The only thing that matters is the numbers, <laughs> right? The only thing that matters is not words, not pieces of paper, not agreements. But in the end, are we able to successfully control our border? I've, I've watched their re-engagement. Uh, I applaud them for that. I applaud President Obrador for taking steps that uh, the previous government wasn't prepared to take, uh, and that's good news, uh, but we've got to get to a better place. We're still not where America needs to be, and frankly, I think it's uh, not only better for America, but I think it's better for the people of Northern Triangle and Mexico as well. Later today, we'll be in El Salvador, part of the Northern Triangle. How are they handling their end of the partnership here to deal with this crisis? What do we expect from them? What do we want from them, and what can they do? But we have broadened our uh, diplomatic engagement with the Northern Triangle. We've taken this very seriously. Uh, many of the folks that we apprehend today at our southern border are not only from those three countries, but are transiting through those three countries. They have an obligation. You know, it's interesting. I saw some statistics on how many Guatemalans have left, how, how deep the uh, level of, of migration is. This isn't good for Guatemala to have their citizens leaving either. They, they need their people to want to stay in their country. Uh, and their leaders need to create rule of law and systems that will uh, convince them that that's the right thing to do. But in the interim, uh, we have enforcement measures and deterrence measures that we have to put in place. And so I'll be with uh, the new leader in El Salvador. Uh, I'll speak with the Guatemalans uh, later this week as well by phone. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do as they are. There are too many people leaving the Northern Triangle and transiting Mexico. Now, switching to Iran for a moment, there was obviously a downed uh, drone, Iranian drone. The Iranian foreign minister seems to think it did not happen. Uh, you've already confirmed that that did, in fact, happen. The Iranians have a doorway to move away from bellicose behavior. They have a path. What is that path? That's really simple. Uh, what President Trump is asking of the leadership in Iran is to behave like a normal nation. What we're not asking, I, I saw last night, I saw Foreign Minister Sharif say, what about the things that Pompeo asked for? There were these 12 points that we laid out. Really, these are 
a set of simple requests that the Iranian regime refrain from killing people in Europe, <laughs> assassination campaigns around the world, release our hostages, stop your nuclear enrichment and your weapons program, uh, cease prepar- preparing missiles that threaten Israel, some simple demands. And for Mr. Zarif said, well, this would be annihilation for my country. I'll have the words a little bit off, but he said this would be national annihilation. Nothing could be further from the truth. What we've asked the leadership of the Islamic Republic of Iran to do is to behave like a normal country. Uh, grow your economy, uh, take care of your own people, stop uh, arming proxy forces that are killing uh, people all around the world and threatening American interests around the world. If they do those things, President Trump is happy to engage them in a way that we engage other countries around the world. Do you think the pressure campaign has a realistic shot of making them concede to those uh, those requests? Remember the mission set of the pressure campaign. Uh, the first priority was to deny the Iranian leadership resources. Uh, the previous administration had taken a different approach. It said, Ali, Ali, oxen free. Here's all the money you can possibly stand to build out your terror campaign, to build your nuclear weapon system, to pay nuclear physicists. Uh, all of the things that money can deliver, terror against Israel out of Hezbollah and uh, from Syria. Uh, our, the first pr- proposition for our campaign was to deny wealth and resources for the Iranian leadership, and it has been enormously successful in doing so. You can see it. Hezbollah's passing the tin cup. Whether this will ultimately lead Iran to make the right rational decision to engage in a negotiation, uh, I'm hopeful. Um, but ultimately, the decision will have to be that of the Ayatollah. And what can you tell us about the status of the ongoing discussions with uh, the Chinese to get some kind of trade agreement? Obviously, what has been called the trade war has been going on for quite some time. I know the president said that there's been some good stuff recently without a whole lot of specifics. Where are we and, and what are the stumbling blocks? Buck, I can't give you many more specifics either. I got an update earlier this week on the status of the negotiations between the Chinese and Secretary Mnuchin and Ambassador Lighthizer. Uh, they're moving forward. In, in the end, the stumbling blocks are this central set of issues. It is how is China going to engage in the world? Are they going to continue to steal intellectual property? Are they going to continue to force American businesses that participate and invest in their economy to uh, transfer technology? Do they want the rule of law? Are they prepared to lower their tariffs so that they're equitable and fair and reciprocal. Uh, those are the things that are being negotiated. Those, those are a set of demands that we put on uh, every country that we trade with. We hope the Chinese will see that that's in their one billion people's best interest. Uh, but so far, the Chinese Communist Party has said that this is not something that they're prepared to live with. And sticking in roughly the same geography, the status of the ongoing talks with North Korea, what reasons should the American people have right now for optimism. Some obviously have been frustrated from the beginning. Uh, others are willing to give the president more leeway because there's been pretty bipartisan failure on this for a while. Why should people think this is going to work? When we came into office, it was in a bad place. President Trump made a decision to engage with them in a serious way. Uh, we're continuing to try to do that. We hope that the working level discussions will begin in a couple of weeks. Uh, the North Koreans have to go fill the promise that Chairman Kim made. He promised that he would denuclearize his country. He did so publicly in a written document. He said so to President Trump. He's told me that half a dozen times personally. Uh, they have to make a decision that they're prepared to go execute that. In exchange for that, President Trump's been very clear. We're prepare- prepared to provide a set of uh, a security arrangements that gives them comfort that if they disband their nuclear program that uh, the United States won't attack them uh, in the absence of that. And second, uh, a brighter future for the North Korean people. Uh, That's the outlines of the agreement that Chairman Kim and President Trump have made. We now need uh, the North Korean negotiators to begin to build out on those principles that the two leaders have set forward. Is there clarity on that major point of what denuclearization means? Absolutely. I've talked to Chairman Kim about this 
many, many times. Absolute clarity. There's no dispute. This is the fully denuclearized, verified effort that we have been talking about for all of this time. There, I hear people talk about whether there's ambiguity. There's no ambiguity. And if I could just bring us back to Latin America quickly, Venezuela, a place where people have been thinking for a while maybe there would be a shift in who's ruling the country, who the president of the country is, is obviously still in dispute. What has the U.S. been doing recently, and, and what should our role be in trying to help oust somebody who is illegitimate, Maduro, and push into power some of the Venezuelan people have already, the parliament has already decided, should be in power with Guaido? Two things, Buck. First, the transformation, you saw a little bit of it yesterday when we were in Ecuador together. The transformation here in South America, in Brazil, in Ecuador, in Paraguay, uh, is enormous. Moving towards freedom, moving towards democracy, trying to get their economies back on free market footings. Uh, That's closely related to what we're trying to do in Venezuela. Uh, We're trying to get Venezuela back to that same place. You can see what socialism did there. Uh, A decade of destruction has now put the Venezuelan people in a place where as many as 5 million Venezuelans will have fled their country over the course of the next, uh, by the time we get to the end of this year. Uh, Our our mission set is to work with allies. We have uh, almost 60 countries now who have recognized the correct, proper, uh, duly elected leader of Venezuela, Juan Guaido. We have uh, the OAS and the Lima Group each working towards the same objective. It, it's worth noting, Buck, Will, two things. One, uh, Maduro leaving is important. He needs to leave. He's not the duly elected leader, and there can't be free and fair elections while he's there in Venezuela. Uh, but second, while that's necessary, uh, the Cubans need to leave as well. Uh, a new leader with uh, thousands of Cuban intelligence and defense officials still inside the country won't have the capacity to deliver for the Venezuelan people. So. We're using tools in the American arsenal uh, that uh, cause the incentive system to change so that we can get to that objective. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, thank you so much for your time, sir. I appreciate it. Buck, wonderful to be with you. Thank you. All right. So I was I was out traveling internationally for this one, but I wanted to bring in producer Mike here for a second, make sure I have all the facts. Producer Mike, Kathy Zhu, who we might have on the show later this week, is a uh, a beauty pageant winner, correct? And she's come on the radar of the leftists because uh, of some tweets, right? Yeah, man. Okay, is she with Miss America? What was the pageant? I always, there's a couple of them. Is yeah, I think right? she was, yeah, I think she was Miss America. Miss, what state was she from again? And not that it really matters. Yeah, but I'll find out. Producer Mike is our unofficial beauty contestant correspondent. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, she, she, she got in trouble and they, and they pulled her, either her state crown or whatever it was. She won a beauty contest and she's a Chinese American, uh, Kathy Zhu. They pulled her crown, and then we find out. Oh, the social justice left thinks that what she said is unacceptable. And I have to say, she's not a media person. She went on CNN and just smoked Allison Camerata. Allison Camerata, I'm a journalist. Oh, <laughs> uh, Camerata, not a sobriety. The Allison Camerata. Uh, oh, she's former. Ooh. Kathy Zhu, former Miss Michigan. Very nice. Yeah. Well done, Michigan. Uh, Michigan can do something right these days. But uh, Camerata and Zhu, part one. This was on CNN. Oh, my. Play 19. So let's look at some of your posts that I think that they had objections to. So here was one. This was from October 2017. I think it was in reference to some conversation about Black Lives Matter. You wrote... Did you know the majority of black deaths are caused by other blacks? Fix problems within your own community first before blaming others. So do you see how 
that could be seen as offensive. You know, this tweet was on, actually in response to another person uh, talking about how all blacks or all cops are bad people, that they kill um, innocent black people. And I think that you shouldn't just put a blanket statement over all cops. Um, you know, again, read full tweets and context uh, to make sure to, follow, to see the full story. Yeah, but I mean, I guess your point of did you know the majority of black deaths are caused by other blacks? What's your point? Um, that's a statistic. And do you know who causes the majority of white deaths? Why would you focus on blacks causing black deaths when the majority of white deaths are caused by white people? Why, you know, this is why people think that that has a ring of racism to it. You didn't mention the white statistic. You're the person who focused in on that statistic. That's the statistic that you decided to highlight instead of police excessive force, showing those statistics. And so this is what got the attention of pageant officials. Well, why didn't you mention who kills the majority of white people? Camerata is, I don't know if she's an idiot or if she just takes her marching orders from Zucker and will just say whatever. I mean, she sounds like a complete moron here. The whole thesis of Black Lives Matter is there is a, a surge and a, a pestilence of racist murders of young black men by white police officers in this country. That is the, the theory is that racially motivated murder is a huge problem for the black community. By the statistics, that's a lie. Oh my gosh, Buck, you can't. No, it's true. It's a lie. It's just not. It is, in fact, very rare for a young black American to be killed by a white police officer. Less than a hundred incidents a year, and that includes lawful use of force incidents, where some guy's running at a cop with a hatchet in his hands trying to kill him. Less than a hundred lethal force incidents a year with uh, law enforcement and a white cop and a young uh, black man, or a black man of any, you know, of any age. That, that's... So that's very rare. There are 320 million people in the country, less than 100 of these incidents year in, year out. And if you were to look at the numbers of how many are clearly justifiable, it's usually about 40 or 50 where there might have been, it could have gone either way, and there's like four or five where, yeah, it was, you know, the murder by, I mean, murder by cop. I mean, that does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's maybe a half dozen in any given year. Those are terrible incidents, but it's not a, it's not a, a national, ongoing, systemic catastrophe. It's just not. So Zoo points this out, and Allison goes, why didn't you mention the white crime rate against other white? What is, that has nothing to do. It doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with it, but she's uh, just not very, they're just not very smart. I know they sound, they try to sound smart at CNN. They, 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 oh, man, they're just, they're posing as smart people but they're really just actors reading lines for the most part. They don't know anything. And Kathy Zhu just completely crushed her. And now here's, you know, the other. Do we do I have time for this one, Mark? How much time do I have left here before? I, all right. I, I got it. So here's here's Camerata and Zhu on Kathy Zhu on hijabs. Play 20. So yes. you wrote here, there's a try a hijab on booth at my college campus. So you're telling me that it's now just a fashion accessory and not a religious thing? Or are you just trying to get women used to being oppressed under Islam? Again? You yeah, you know. What would you like to say about that? You don't see how that could be offensive? 
not at all. Um, they were, you know, the, I went past the booth. I was late for class already. They were saying, do you want to put on a hijab, putting it, you know, over me? I said, no, I don't want to. I declined uh, wearing this, you know, garment. I think that, you know, it's, it's really... Uh, rude, I feel like, to, to Muslims too, that, you know, to wear their sacred garment on someone who isn't a Muslim themselves. You know, I, I don't, I wouldn't want to put, you know, a Catholic rosary on someone if they aren't Catholic. Right, but so that's I think, not you know, what you said. What you said, it wasn't that you felt badly for them that you weren't Muslim. It's that you said, or you're just trying to get women used to being oppressed under Islam. Yes, there are, there the are so many women in Muslim countries right now who are being stoned to death because they don't want to wear a hijab due to their husband's um, requirement to do so. And I think that we should be focusing on that way more than um, the Western things about Muslim because, you know, there, there are so many bad things happening in Muslim countries because of these, you know, women and, and these women are being, you know, crucified for not wearing a hijab. And I think that's really, really awful. Kathy Zhu is just a lot smarter than CNN's Allison Camerata. That's what comes across in this interview. Nothing Kathy Zhu said is racist and evil, you know, but the left is full of woke crybabies now who are looking for any little thing to be offended by uh but in in the in the first battle of of camarada v zoo zoo took her to the cleaners man it was not even close but what about this thing you said uh, allison should really stick to like selling stuff on the home shopping network she is not she is not up for this debate thing on tv we just spoke about antifa in the last segment and, and it reminded me of a follow-up I wanted to do to the story about how our, our friend Andy No, a, a, an intrepid, a, a real journalist, somebody that puts himself in harm's way to get facts and stories told that the public should know about and that much of the media does not want to cover because of their political biases. Andy No uh, has released video of right after he was attacked on June 29th by Antifa in Portland. It was just a, a crazy incident. It's so violent. Police n- police are there, but do nothing. They just stand idly by while law-abiding citizens and, and while journalists, real journalists like Andy, are attacked. I think he had a brain hemorrhage. I mean, he really got attacked. It wasn't a little. He They, they put him in the hospital. Uh, here's the way that these Antifa folks, the ones that the media is always trying to come up with a, a new way of saying, oh, they're not that bad. And, oh, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here's what they how they treat the media. Uh, it's, uh, this is this is very uh, instructive about just how much ideology blinds leftist journos to what's really going on. Here's how they. Uh, here's how they talked to some journalists right after they attacked Andy. Play four. He's got to go. He's one of them. I'm out here just trying to cover both sides. Do you support the other side? I know I'm just out here to cover the whole thing. You don't support them? I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm, no, you're not. From what paper? I'm not from a paper. You don't have to be. It's the age of the internet. Do you have any journalist credentials? No, no that's not a, a personal that, journalist. Yeah, I'm just a guy. Hey, who's got a bullhorn? We've got a fascist member right here in the media. This guy's with the Patriot Brown. Move out of the way. I'm walking that way. You're walking that Move way? Move the out of my way. Okay, okay. Move, okay, yeah, I know. Move out of my way. Why? Right now. Why? I'm going to walk into you again. Move my way. Move to the sidewalk. Want to do some fat guy? Right, Martin? Come on, let's go. Yeah, dude, you, you better just leave, man. I don't think people like you here. I know. I think you're scaring people, man. Scaring people. This is the Force Police Bureau. Very interesting. Notice how the Antifa member here, 
those little liberal lunatics, wants to know if he's an, a journalist with an established outlet. And what does that tell you? Why do they fear so much non-established outlet journalists? And why would they be so fine with somebody from, say, CNN or Reuters or, well, from my own experience being around the press recently, the big P press, because they're a bunch of lib activists, too. And we all know this. Antifa knows that they're really not that the journalists who are there covering it, the establishment journalists, they're not looking to show what a bunch of maniacs Antifa are. They're there to get the police reaction in the hopes that they can find some photos of police in riot gear, maybe engaged in some police brutality. That's the story. Remember, we always talk about narrative, the narrative that mainstream journalists want to tell whenever these incidents in Portland with Antifa, with the so-called anti-fascists happen is, oh, look at look at these pictures of how crazy things are. And oh, look at this police overreaction. It's never these are leftists who would all vote for a Democrat for president who think that violence against those with whom they politically disagree is justified. And they are part of a cohesive ideology that has chapters across the country and acts as a domestic terrorist organization. That is not the story the left-wing journos want to tell. But that's why they want to know what outlet are you with? I mean, heaven forbid somebody would say, oh, I'm with Fox News. You know, heaven forbid you you weren't from one of the mainstream press shops that they know that Antifa knows, you know, just like they wouldn't show the photo of Obama, that that photographer wouldn't show the photo of Obama shaking uh, hands with Farrakhan before the election. You know, just a very newsworthy picture, but they they buried it because they didn't want to create problems for Obama. They wouldn't want to show photos of Antifa really bludgeoning Andy. No, because that doesn't look good for their team. The journos all pick teams these days, friends. They just pretend not to. Even Antifa knows it. By the way, nobody has been arrested yet in that beating of Andy No. So if there's anything you can do if you're in the area to help identify them and find them, let me know. We got we to gotta track down those, those absolute thugs of Antifa. Now, how many times have you been in line at the grocery store in the express line, which we all know is is a very important innovation in the grocery and food service business because if you've only got to buy two things it seems a little bit unfair that you have to wait in line behind somebody who's trying to feed you know a a a barbecue of 50 that's coming over that same night and it's going to take 20 minutes to check out right that that seems like a pretty understandable both a, a rule and it's one that has to be kind of like the quiet car on Amtrak which some of you at least are familiar with it's one that has to be enforced socially not by socialists, but it has to be enforced by all of us, right? Hey, you know, you got too many items, too many items in your cart there, buddy or madam. Um, so, I, look, uh, this is it's one of these small incidents that is a reminder. The one I'm about to tell you about uh, is a reminder that y- you can't go about your day to day without possibly falling afoul of the social justice warriors. There's just too many ways now. The uh, social media is too omnipresent. For any of us to think that we're able to just go through our lives without this possibility. All right, so here's what happened. And this got a lot of attention while I was globetrotting with Secretary Pompeo on his jet. I'm just kidding. I was like in the way back with the press people. And, you know, they had us, they had us penned in there like a bunch of uh, 
uh, a bunch of sheep. But anyway, here we go. This is what happened over the weekend. Georgia State Representative Erica Thomas, uh, down in the great state of Georgia, said that uh, somebody went up to her. Well, here, we, we actually have her saying what, remember, this is all about a grocery store, too many items in your bag incident. I'm at the grocery store. And I'm in the 10 out, the out that says 10 items or less. Yes, I have 15 items, but I'm not much pregnant and I can't stand up for long. And this white man comes up to me and says, you lazy son of a bitch. He says, you lazy son of a bitch. You need to go back where you came from. Wow. That's a horrible thing to say to somebody. Completely unacceptable. What a, what a disgrace this, uh, what, how did she describe him again, this, this white man? What a disgrace this white man, clearly racist this white man, uh, was for doing this. Now, before we go further, I would just say that when somebody has 15 items and they should have 10, I think it's one of those situations where, you know, if it's 15, maybe you let it slide. If you want to be the one that, that enforces the rule, though, I think you just kindly say, excuse me, but I think you have too many items. I would appreciate it if. That's the way you say it. You certainly don't go up to somebody and yell at them or say horrible things. It's just not worth it. It's not a serious enough offense, right? Like, let's not be crazy. But here's the problem with some here like, Buck, I will enforce that rule. Here's the problem with uh, Representative Erica Turner's story. It's a lie. She made it up. All the really bad stuff didn't happen. Oh, that's right, folks. Another high-profile, national media-level race hoax. How many of these do we have to see before we realize that the left is obsessed with race because it's a cheap, quick, easy way, the accusation of racism, for them to either win an, ar- for them to win an argument, to feel virtuous based on nothing, and to keep alive this notion in their own heads that they are fighting, they, the leftists, are fighting this battle against the evil, white male, racist hegemony in America all the time. Uh, so here's, here's the problem, is that the man that she accused of this, uh, the man that she a- a- accused showed up at a, at a press conference that she was giving and they had a an altercation about this. Uh, his his last name was was Sparks. Uh, this is what this is what ended up happening here. So here we go. Christian Jennings, who is a WSB reporter, wrote: We were getting ready to interview Representative Erica Thomas outside the Publix, where she said a man called her the B word and told her to get, go back where you came from. Well, that man was already here at the Publix because he wanted to speak to management. She confronted him. Oh, this all now. We have facts now. We have video. Hmm. Here's how that media exchange in real time went. Play six. And calls you a son of an. I am facing the man that degraded me and berated me. And I'm not crying. No, I'm not. I'm standing right in front of you. And if you know how you made me feel yesterday, if you know how you made my daughter feel. Back off before I call the police. Call the police right now because they are looking for you. I already talked to them. I already talked to them. It's okay. I am so happy that you're here. And I'm happy that everybody needs to see this man that did this to me. 
and he thinks that he gets a five minutes of fame, you think that you're gonna come up when you see police, when you see SB, SB 46, you think you're gonna come up here and get a spotlight? No, you're not. The only spot that you're gonna get is everybody needs to see the man that did this to a woman that's nine months pregnant. Are you a state legislator? Nobody is here for you. Are you a state Nobody legislator? Huh. Eric Sparks was the man that he, he showed up while she's giving this press conference. Speaking about seeking 15 minutes of fame, she's the one who wants her 15 minutes of fame, clearly. And she got it for all the wrong reasons. Eric Sparks, who it was, it came out later, is a Cuban-American Democrat, a registered Democrat. So a Latino Democrat is the one who confronted this woman. And he spoke for himself in front of the camera so we could all hear exactly how this whole thing went down. Play eight. She did mention she's nine months pregnant. I said it doesn't matter in this case. It has no point on this case. There's two empty lines. You don't need to be in the express lane. Then I stated, she said a few words. I stated, well, you're selfish little B-I-T-C-H. I did say that. That's all I said after that, and I walked out of public. Her words, stating on Twitter in her video, stating I told her she needs to go back where she came from, are untrue. I just wish we could all have a little moment of national honesty here, where if racism in this country was as bad as leftists pretend it is, they wouldn't need to constantly be making up incidents of racism and publicizing them. I mean, this is... This is not quite on the scale of a Jussie Smollett, which was a premeditated racial hoax. Uh, But this is a woman who figured, oh, here's my here's my opportunity to get famous and have everybody think that I'm a a, a really, you know, I'm a person who's been victimized and I I need their support and all this. And it turns out and she said, "Okay, well, no, he didn't actually say to come back home. You know, she's walked that whole thing back. Didn't actually say I need to go back to where I came from. So that means that there's no racial exchange here, right? Just someone calling her a, a you know, a, a, uh, a selfish B word is not nice. And I, I think I'll be, I think that the Sparks fellow was being a bit, a bit uh, nasty. Um, I, I don't think he's a hero in this. I just think that he's not a, you know, he's not a white male racist Republican Trump supporter, which is what obviously Erica Thomas thought she'd be able to convince everybody was going on here. That was the plan, right? She was hoping, okay, well, I can get everyone to think that, you know, this was an incident of of MAGA bigotry. Turns out, no, it's a Democrat. It's a guy who just got a little bit ticked off that she was in the in the wrong line of grocery store. Now, again, I, I think that we, we all just need to be a little more civil to each other. Everyone should be a little bit nicer. But I, I will note that this this uh, Erica Thomas, who's a state state representative in Georgia, you know, she's not going to lose her job. She's not going to live in infamy for this or whatever. She could have ruined somebody's life. I mean, the intent of what she did here was to lie about someone, to brand him a racist so that she could then further smear and brand all white male Trump supporters, because that's always the implication. This white male racist who is a Republican did this racist thing. Therefore, all white male racists are like him. Right? This is the they, they extract from one into many. And the leftists will always shut this down on the other side. You know, it's never, oh, 
this guy who is representing Antifa, that Antifa supports, that quoted the words of AOC about concentration camps when he attacked this ICE facility up in Washington. It's never, oh, he's part of a broader movement and maybe maybe the left should tone down its rhetoric a little. Oh, no, they, they don't do that. It's only it's a one way street with all of that. But another another racial hoax, an, another racist incident that turns out to be fabricated. There's now this was a nasty incident, but it's reminiscent of a lot of uh, a lot of weird things that people go through on any given day. I mean, I had a woman actually I'll tell you this. She lives in my building in D.C. And I was walking home. This was months and months ago. I was walking home from the hill and I was walking pretty, pretty briskly because I want to get home and I'm a pretty fast walker. And this very small, very slight, very petite and uh, rather nasty woman uh, kind of scurried in from behind me and, and looked in my face and yelled, you know, I've been trying to walk ahead of you. And I, I guess it's because we were. Uh, it was the sidewalk had narrowed a little bit because there was a sidewalk cafe and there were some other people coming in the opposite direction. But I, I looked at her and I was actually, it was such a bizarre incident that I didn't even have a comeback or because I looked at her, I was like, are, are, what did it, I mean, my brain process was, are, are you a complete moron? If you really need to get around me, jog or walk into the street where there are no cars at all and just cut in front of me. But you, you know, if, if I'm not walking fast enough for you on an open street and you are right behind me, the answer is not to walk in front of me after, I don't know, your five seconds of frustration and then tell me that I'm not walking fast enough for you. It's an open street in Washington, D.C. There's nothing but there's nothing but open space around me. There's plenty of places to go. But you've chosen a lane that is right behind me. Cho- choose a different way to walk. Go, move to the right. Move to the left. Make a right turn at the next intersection. <laughs> like, it was just... But I, I was I was actually dumbstruck by it because it was so dumb. Because she was such a moron. I, I didn't know what to say. So we can all be subjected to these things where we have to interact with somebody who's a complete nincompoop. But, you know, I didn't, say, I didn't call her the B word. I didn't say anything mean. I just kind of looked at her like, huh? So that's probably... When in doubt, folks, just do that. Just stare at somebody with a quizzical expression. Don't do a race hoax. Well, team, last week, El Chapo got sent to El Prisono, and he's not going to be getting out for any time, I believe. I think he's going to be there pretty much forever. So what the heck is going on with the Mexican drug trade now? What is the reality going forward of of the drug war in the absence of of El Chapo? We have with us now Yon Grillo, who is a uh, foreign based journalist he's in mexico he's written some great books including gangster warlords which i downloaded onto my kindle i recommend you do the same yo and thanks so much for making the time for us always good to be here buck all right so yo first let's just deal with, with the el chapo i mean post sentencing a lot of people will probably be thinking okay well this very big fish has been has been taken out of the pond so to speak has it had a what has been let me ask that what has been the effect of el chapo uh, getting taken off the the drug the drug kingpin battlefield, so to speak. Well, I think the the arrest, uh, the extradition, and the, and the trial and sentencing of El Chapo is really the culmination of the kingpin strategy that the DEA and the Mexican government have been pursuing for for, for many years, going after the biggest fish, and they keep on you know, keep on trying to get bigger and bigger. And he was the most infamous drug trafficker in the world. Now I say the most infamous, and I think he was. 
on a level of infamy alongside Al Capone and Pablo Escobar, but it doesn't necessarily translate into really his wealth or his power. I think he was more of an emblematic, iconic figure in the Sinaloa cartel. So the process of him being taken down specifically and the various other kingpins being taken down is that nowadays many of the, the Mexican drug traffickers and the other Latin American drug traffickers don't want the same profile. They're trying to keep a bit more off the radar. They're not advertising themselves in the same way, wanting to get so famous or infamous as El Chapo or Pablo Escobar. But the drug trade itself continues. I mean, it's a business. Um, Americans are still buying large quantities of illegal drugs. A lot of heroin, uh, as you well know, a lot of cocaine. Crystal meth is making a big comeback, and the Mexican traffickers are producing a lot of crystal meth. And the Mexican cartels are also in fentanyl now, as well as still selling some marijuana, although the legalization has cut some of that off. So the trade itself carries on. You've got a host of different figures around in the Sinaloa cartel and in a dozen rival cartels. So this you know, multi-billion dollar business keeps on ticking away. And, and what kind of violence are we seeing uh, for those other cartels as they're jockeying for some uh, you know, supremacy, and, and whether it's just within an individual cartel or, or against each other? How much violence are we seeing among cartel members? Yeah, a very large amount. Now, you know, this has been a continuing problem as well in the war on drugs or in the fighting against the drug trade. Is you get rid of one monster and, and a worse monster takes its place. So one of the, the cartels has been coming up, you know, with the fresh one, the Sinaloa cartel, this cartel called the Jalisco New Generation Cartel has been on the rise. They are on the sites of U.S. law enforcement. There's a special uh, task force against them. There have been, you know, busts of many of their people in the United States. Um, but they're a cartel which is very paramilitary-like as well in their actions. So, you know, historically they've done things like they shot down a, a Mexican military helicopter using an RPG-7. They had a couple of their own uh, places uh, like uh, uh, huts here which were assembling uh, AR-15 assault rifles. There are hundreds of those they're making themselves. And they've been involved in all kinds of killings in many parts of the country. Places like Tijuana, which is now actually the most murderous city in Mexico uh, by the numbers is Tijuana right on the border there with San Diego a big battle there with the Jalisco New Generation cartel against the Sinaloa cartel and a bunch of other places also they're fighting in Cancun you've been lots of stories about the bodies turning up in Cancun, Playa del Carmen also they're there fighting another older cartel, the Seta so still a lot of violence going on and tragically, and this is really tragic you know, after I've been covering this for 18 years and always in the hope that somehow this will get better, that somehow you know, we can try and make a difference by covering it. The first six months of this year have been the most violent on recent records, the most violent since the modern record-keeping began of murders in the early 1990s. And when we're talking about you know, more than 17,000 killings in the first six months. We're speaking to Yon Grillo, author of El Narco, as well as Gangster Warlords. I actually have read and downloaded both books, so I can recommend them to you all as books that you should check out if you want to know about uh, Latin American gang warfare, the drug trade, and, and all the rest of it, the drug cartels. If you want to, if you want to enjoy uh, the Netflix series Narcos a little bit more, you can check out Yon's book. Uh, but, but Yon, I wonder, how is this current Mexican government approaching the uh, the cartels and the war against the cartels. I was just down in Mexico City traveling with Secretary Pompeo, mm -hmm. as the audience knows, 
And I, I know there was a whole bunch of behind closed door meetings. I didn't get to hear what was going on there. I would just want to know, are they considered aggressive? I mean, it, you know, because we don't see the headlines we used to about cartel mm. violence, but you're telling me there's all this violence. So what is the Mexican government doing about it? Sure. So this current government, when uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador was running for office, he had two different uh, you know, positions in a way on this. One was this idea of talking about peace and reconciliation of the war being over. I mean, when he was asked, in fact, you know, he talked about forgiveness. And even when he was asked about the sentencing of El Chapo, he's saying, oh, it's, you know, it's, I don't wish anybody to spend their whole life in prison in these kind of conditions, which is you know, quite controversial. Um, but he had this talk about peace and some way finding some way out of ending this, finding a peace to this thing. His other position that's quite different is this idea of really returning the power of the state. Now, if you see what's been happening in Mexico and in a lot of Latin America in recent years, and it really is the root of a lot of the people fleeing the violence and turning up on the U.S. border asking for asylum, is the kind of collapse or the degradation of governments and states in these countries. And you see that in Mexico. So one of his messages is the idea of returning the power in the state. And he's talked about this, or he's launched a new police force called the National Guard, a militarized police force moving around the country. Now, these two positions are a little bit contradictory. He kind of, in some ways, has a discourse of peace, but more of a position of trying to get the troops out there. Now, the, those uh, militarized police have been involved, involved a lot in um, uh, detaining uh, migrants from Central America in, in recent, the last month particularly, in, in big numbers. And, and that's what a lot of the meeting you went to was, was discussing. Um, but however, they should also, in theory, try and reduce the level of violence. He hasn't, you know, in the same way as you saw back in the administration of Felipe Calderon, where there was a kind of big, um, high-profile takedowns and the idea of putting people, they capture in front of the TV cameras. Um, that kind of thing has gone away. So that's part of the reason why you're not seeing this on the news so much. And part of the reason is simply, you know, people get weary of this. I mean, it's very sad to say, when I first started covering this, you know, many years ago, and when the people were beheaded, it was a big story. When there was five beheadings, it was a big story. By the time we got to like 48 bodies that have been beheaded, it got to such severe numbers. Now there can be 12 beheadings, you know, 20 people killed. It doesn't even make national news in a big way anymore. Yon, I, I was also in El Salvador, and I, I've got to say the the new president there was saying things that I think a lot of Americans would would like to hear from any foreign partner that they aren't looking for handouts, that they want to be self sufficient, they want to take the problems of crime on uh, head on, they they want to make sure that they can make it a place for foreign direct investment. Essentially, the, the president of El Salvador was saying, look, we know this place is poor. We know this place is overrun with criminal gangs. We're going to turn that around. Uh, why haven't they been able to thus far? I mean, what, what is what is the status of the, uh, as you put it in your book, I mean, the gangster warlords in El Salvador, most notably, but not only MS-13? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things there. I mean, one thing is it's not easy. There's not a clear blueprint how to do this. If you look at the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean that are suffering this really high level of violence, you can talk about a dozen countries across the place. You can go down to Brazil, um, Honduras, Jamaica, and see these same problems, you know, repeated from place to place. And no country, no government has found a clear path 
on how you deal with this you know, quite overwhelming levels of crime. But the other thing is the resources they have are very, very small. Now, in, in El Salvador, in Honduras, these are very poor countries. And you know, I've been out with the police in those countries, and you see sometimes they, they're seriously outgunned. So, you know, as well as them, you know, having, um, you know, a few, you know, very few resources. And the third thing, a lot of the time, the, the, the governments themselves are part of the problem. I mean, Honduras particularly, you know, a, a very corrupt government where you had the, the president's brother, um, you know, accused on drug trafficking charges. Um, you've got, you know, widespread accusations of, of murders, extrajudicial killings by the security forces. Uh, so sometimes you have the, the governments themselves are part of the problem. I think they're really those three things combining together um but you know one thing is that central america you know it's very obviously very near the united states very poor countries a small amount of money will go a very long way uh, and you know it is interesting i think the united states has got involved in many countries around the world but these countries right on its doorstep where a few resources can make a really big difference that difference hasn't been made yon grillo everybody author of gangster warlords and el narco yon Stay safe down there in Mexico. Eat some tacos for me. I, I'm sorry we didn't get to meet up this time. Next time in Mexico City, though, you've got to buy some yeah, cervezas, all right? Absolutely. I'll buy you cervezas. I know, best, I know the best places, and then always great to chat, uh, Buck. All the best. Thanks so much, my friend. Take care. Team, we'll be right back. It said no collusion. The report was written, and the attorney general, based on the report, was easily able to find there was no obstruction. Uh, there's no nothing. They're wasting their time. Uh, and Robert Mueller, I know he's conflicted. He had... A lot, there's a lot of conflicts that he's got, including the fact that his best friend is Comey. But he's got conflicts with me, too. He's got big conflicts with me. As you know, he wanted the job of the FBI director. He didn't get it. And we had a business uh, relationship where I said no. And uh, I would say that he wasn't happy. Then all of a sudden he gets this position. But you know what? He still ruled. And I respect him for it. He still ruled. No collusion, no obstruction. And uh, this thing should have ended a long time ago. This has been going on for two and a half years. And we're never going to allow this to happen to another president again, because most of them wouldn't be able to take it. President Trump getting ready for what's going to just be, I think, it's pretty obvious, really, a battle of narratives after the Comey, I'm sorry, the uh, Mueller testimony. We already had Comey, Sancta Comey. I still think that's one of the best nicknames for him out there. We started here on this show. We got the Mueller testimony in front of Congress on Wednesday. Ooh, here in the swamp here in D.C., everyone's going to be so excited about this. And there'll be all this focus. I'm going to have to watch it all day long. I'll have to be all about this, paying all kinds of attention to this. Um, but truth be told, I think it's going to result in very little new information i think that the greatest likelihood here is that you're going to have him just repeat and this is this will be his strategy because his strategy all along was to give the democrats as much as he could to help them in their efforts to destroy trump i think what's going to happen is that he's going to get he's going to just stick to the script almost literally and that he's just going to say it's it, that what's in the report is my answer or I'll repeat what I've what we wrote in the report. And you're just going to hear him say he's everything's going to be about the report, the report, the report. And th that's going to be his escape hatch. They're going to try to ask him some questions on the on the uh, Republican side of the aisle about why didn't 
Why didn't he look into anything having to do with the origins of the investigation, the origins of the of the dossier on Russia collusion, all this stuff? And he'll just say, you know, he'll say it's in the report or look at what we wrote in the report, even when there is nothing in the report. I, I believe that's going to be one of his strategies as well. She's going to be saying, well, you know, just just look at the report, man. That's going to be the way that he deflects whenever whenever he wants on everything that he wants to deflect um but yeah i i don't expect there to be a, a whole lot that comes out of it of, of major consequence because all along this has been about trying to take down trump and there's just no there's no way to do more than what they've already done on russia collusion they, they've tried everything that they realistically can try i just don't i don't see anything here uh i don't see anything that's going to come out that'll be particularly helpful to them i mean kellyanne conway she certainly look. I know she's the president's counselor and really spokesperson in many ways. Uh, she agrees with me, so there's that. Eighteen. The president has zero concerns except that the taxpayers are on the hook again for this fantasy that never came true for the Democrats who promised all of you and sometimes with your help that there would be criminal conspiracy and collusion. Uh, the Russians helped the Trump campaign. We welcomed we welcomed help, and it and it turned an election where you know that's not true. Director Mueller himself has said that his report is his testimony that ought to be respected and that ought to be accepted. We know neither side is going to accept that. It's it's going to turn into a, a free for all. Of he said this, he said that. Oh my gosh! There'll be that on on both sides. Although I really do think that. The Democrats, they had somebody trying to make their case for them as the special counsel for two years with a whole bunch of Democrat prosecutors alongside him. So, I mean, they've had their shot and then some. If we're going to be honest about this, Republicans have not had their shot. We have not had someone with the kind of powers that Mueller has, with the resources that Mueller had looking into exactly what was done in this whole Russia collusion farce by people like James Comey and Andy McCabe and you know what was going on with this guy Mifsud and well you know you, you look at all these different threads the dossier Christopher Steele all of this no one has been able to look at that the way that the Democrats have already had Mueller with full prosecutorial and investigative powers try to make their case for them so what I'm saying is they've already spent their ammunition. We, we haven't had anyone fire off rounds on our behalf, so to speak. Uh, we've just been sitting around saying, when can this complete sham of an investigation come to an end? So we'll talk more about the Mueller situation as, as it gets closer. But, I, you know, I, I always tell you the truth here. I respect and quite honestly, I'm just too fond of this audience to do anything other than tell you the truth and what I really think. I could probably see this. Oh, Wednesday, it's. That's when the whole Mueller thing comes. That's when the swamp rats are running for cover and all. You know, this is you know, your people saying this on different shows and different stations. I just I don't see it happening. Uh, Mueller's too cagey. And, and he's remember, he's not just protected by the Democrats that will be there. They'll, they'll be there to bail him out. And Democrats will act like spoiled children in Congress. They'll they'll scream and kick and whine if they have to to stop a hostile line of questioning against Mueller. But then the media will just run total interference for him and, and magnify whatever talking points the Democrats give them beforehand. It doesn't even really matter what he says. I already can tell you, or you already know what Mueller's testimony is going to be. It's in the report. 
We couldn't prove this. We couldn't we couldn't prove that. Was it a weird, shady, politicized thing I did? I'm not going to answer that question. You know, see you later. That's the way it's going to be. But I could be wrong. It's rare, but it's possible. The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for Roll Call. I feel like it has been days and days, team, since we had a chance to chat through the roll call. So thank you so much for uh, sending me your thoughts. I missed you all. I always feel this way. And I wasn't even on vacation this time. It's not like Buck was on the beach, hanging out, drinking some low low agave margs. That's kind of become... I, I, I refuse to call them skinny margaritas. Because first of all, none of them make you skinny. All right, You're drinking tequila with other alcohol in there sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I missed you all. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Back safe and sound from my Latin American travels with the uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, who, as I've been saying, is just a phenomenal guy. I mean, Pompeo and Barr are two of the best administration officials in the two, probably the two most important jobs you have other than Secretary of Defense. So I guess you got three in there. But those are top three. I, DOJ and Secretary of State. I think you got to put that up there. But Pompeo was a very nice guy. And just you can just tell too. everyone who's working with him at state, even though a lot of them are you can tell a lot of them are Democrat career State Department personnel. Everyone really respects this guy. He's the real deal. All right. Uh, we have Michael who writes. Buck, I will buy and enjoy any book you write. However, I wish you were writing a history book instead of a political one. Shields high. Well, Michael, I'm writing a book on socialism, my friend. So there you go. There's a there's a hint. And it will be out by the end of this year. I am I'm a mean, lean writing machine these days. So there will be a book on socialism. It's going to be pretty, uh, pretty dope as the kids. Actually, I think the kids used to say that in like the 90s, but I'm a child of the 90s. I'd like to think I'm a child of the 80s, but I don't really remember the 80s. I'm really a 90s kid. So, yeah, I think uh, you will enjoy the book, hopefully. Please do buy it. I, I would love to do a pop history thing. What I'd really want to do would be to collaborate with a, tr- with, a, with a career historian on one of the areas that I like and just try to help craft a story. And, and I, I don't know. I've got some ideas for that. Also, I want to go back and finish more episodes of Shields High. But I, I think the way we're going to have to do that is... Uh, we're going to do Shield Tie, but we'll, we, I want to figure out a way to make it like a download where you can, uh, it's like iTunes, so you just download and you pay for the show. It'll be like a dollar a show or something, but we need to find some way, because otherwise I can't justify to the, the bosses me taking time offline to do a show if it's just all, because I'm, I'm already doing one free radio show. To do another free radio show is, is tough. So, yeah. But yes, there will be a book. It's I mean, the book is in, it's being written. I'm not just talking about it conceptually. I'm already chapters into it. So there you go. Seth writes, Ben and Rahim rocked it. By the way, I picked up Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell after you mentioned him a while back. It's crazy to learn all the details on why price control is such a bad idea. My mind has been blown at least a dozen times and I'm only 56 pages in. This should be required reading in school. Well, you know, part of the reading that I've been doing lately, because I just pick things that I want to read, and I usually have three or four books at a time that I jump between reading. 
almost done with Hazoni's The Virtue of Nationalism. I know he's been popping up a lot these days here in America. He's an Israeli scholar and author. Um, I, I've uh, also, I have almost made my way through um, a book that is called, the well, it's, it's The Twelve Who Ruled, and it's about the French Revolution, the period of the terror, the terroir. It's kind of hard to say, terroir. Uh, but a, a, a really a brutal and bloody and, and uh, uh, chilling period of really the, the rise of the terror under the Committee of Public Safety during the French Revolution from 17, it's 1793 is the year that this book is focused on. And it is about the committee. That's the, that's the 12. Those were the 12 who ruled. And it's fascinating. Now, I'm going to tell you, this book is dense. It's over 400 some odd pages, but it's very it's wordy. It's long. It's been around for a while, but it's a fascinating look into how these really these mid-level country lawyers, these middle class legal bureaucrats became the single most powerful entity. This committee, the Committee of Public Safety, that was really the executive committee of the convention of the French Revolution, the National Convention, and how they would uh, convince themselves all for the all for the cause, all for the revolution. Folks, it's so much a a preview of the terrors and the atrocities of the Soviet Union and, and the and the Bolshevik Revolution and what happened there. You can just draw all of these parallels. Uh, the French Revolution was a revolution from the left. That becomes very clear when you see, uh, one, there's a, an enormous war on both the church. They hated the church. They're renaming Catholic churches the temp- temples of reason uh, and also desecrated churches, executed, took real delight. Some of the committee members in particular in the French Revolution took real pleasure in executing and uh, in some cases torturing priests and nuns. Uh, so there's a war on the church and a war on the individual as well. If you stood in the way of the revolution, you were effectively a counter-revolutionary. And counter-revolutionary was a term that the Soviets would apply to anyone who stood in the way of the Central Committee or the, the Politburo and the, the Communist Party and really Stalin. Because uh, there was a centralization beyond just the committee in the Soviet Union where it became a, a dictatorship, a totalitarianism. In the French, at, at the height of the terror of the French Revolution, you had a dictatorship of 12, essentially. Well, OK, why am I talking about this other than just I'm fascinated by this book and the parallels to uh, so much of what we have seen from the left? And also it's there's a lot of early socialist class warfare tendencies, a lot of class warfare discussion that is, is a preview of Marx in 1793 in the French Revolution. So much hatred of not just the aristocrats, but the bourgeoisie, the middle tier shop owners. And that's where you get to the command of the uh, the commands that they instituted regarding the economy. And you had an effort at at price control. In fact, there was a law that was passed called the law of the maximum or the general maximum. And the law of the maximum was just a price control mechanism that you could, depending on the severity and also the political connections you had, and if anyone was trying to get you, you could be executed for hoarding. They actually had a, a part of this period was a, a ban on people trying to 
keep things for themselves as the prices rose and then try to try to profit off of them. And they had severe punishments, but they had all the problems instituting price controls that even modern economies do. The moment that you institute price controls, all of a sudden there are shortages. And that's because people cannot create those goods. Right. The market sets the price. The government can say the price is something else, but the market sets the price. So when the government says, oh, the price needs to be lower than what the market will, will bear, then you have shortages because you won't have the producers won't produce. They can't produce in many cases for the. And this is what led to some of the worst economic uh, catastrophe in Venezuela as well in, in recent years. But this was a problem in 1793. This was a problem in in France, which was you know, one part of this book that it gets into that it gets into that I think is so interesting is that our revolution, you know, America was a bunch of colonies. We were not a rich country when we took on the British at the French Revolution. One of the reasons they were able to kind of gut it out, you know, they were able to just the, the revolutionaries would stay until the rise of Napoleon and, and a, a true dictatorship of an individual was because the country had so much wealth to be pillaged. That even the terrible decisions, and this is, folks, this is for me a, I'd like to say it's something, I wish I didn't say it this way, but this for me is a cautionary tale about what it would be like in this country. Because we're so wealthy, it would take a long time and a lot for us to be so pillaged that we become a dysfunction economically a dysfunctional and poor country. And all along the way, the people who are destroying the economy, living off the the fruits of of our labor previously built up, li- living off of the accumulated wealth in this country, you could have idiot socialists in charge for a long time. And they'd say, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Look, we can pay for this. It's fine. By the time it's not fine because you've emptied the treasuries entirely, you find then it's too late. <laughs> right. In in the French Revolution, you know, we didn't our founding fathers did not have the the luxury, if you will, it would have been a bad thing, but of of saying we're going to seize all church property, we're going to seize all government assets and land, and and these are re- these are very valuable things that we could profit from on the international market that we could use to buy gunpowder and go- you know we 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 didn't have that backing. We we had ideas, and I won't get into the how our revolution is different from theirs right now, but. The French Revolution was able to sustain itself because they cannibalized the entire French state. And they was and it was the wealthiest country in the world, or at least the wealthiest country in the Western world at that time. So that that went a long way. Uh, So that's anyway, that's just but price control. See, you got me on price controls because this is what I'm 12 who ruled. I'm reading about it. Oh, man, there's some stuff in there. There's a guy who was one of the essentially one of the pro consoles that. The French Revolution, because remember the French Revolution, they are surrounded on all sides by hostile powers that are trying to pick off pieces of France and of, of uh, trying to extend their own empires. They have the, the, the Prussians, the Austrians, the, the Dutch, the English, and you know, they also had dissent and, and insurrection from within the campaign in the Vendée or the Vendéans fighting against them, as well as other areas that were, were taking up arms against the but so they sent out these proconsuls who were given absolute authority to do whatever they wanted to do, whatever they felt they had to do to suppress and revolutionize the area. And I mean, this guy Carrier, uh, he he went out and he instituted this whole policy of mass drowning. Uh, they took all these captives from the Vendée, which is in western France, uh, as an area that had rebelled against the revolutionary government. Uh, the uh, the government of the sans culotte 
uh, or the sans, sans culottes. Sorry, I should not pronounce the S at the end. And th this guy instituted mass drownings. And they knew about it in, in Paris. And they're like, oh, well, just taking people out in chains in boats by the hundreds and just going, okay, and just drowning everybody. I mean, that's one way to go. Real savage, uh, savage brutality, really nasty stuff. Anyway, price controls never work. They never work. It's a terrible idea. And it's, it's basic economics as to why they don't work. More roll call on the flip side. All right, more roll call here. Harry writes, hey, Buck, since you often mentioned King Joffrey, first of his name, have you read Jonathan Swift's 1723 essay, A Modest Proposal? Here's a modest proposal a la Joffrey. Save America a lot of money. Instead of building an expensive 1,000-mile, 30-foot-high wall, put a 10-foot interval row of 6-foot spikes along the border topped with the heads of MS-13 members as a warning. Think that would work? Shields high. Harry. Harry. Come on. We're not, I know you're being, you're, you're being a, a, a little provocative here, but obviously we're not going to behead people and put their heads on walls. But I know you know that. Um, you're just being literary and... Oh, Harry, you, you imp. Uh... Erica writes, can we stop calling them the squad and start calling them the Heathers? Because they definitely treat American citizens like we are Martha Dump Truck. Um, I have. I, what is the reference to the Heathers? Producer Mike, do you know? You, you're, you know. Yeah, it's a it's an old movie. I forget who's in it. But um, have you ever seen it? Heathers? No, no. I think that's what they're referring to. I could be wrong. Yeah. It's a I mean, Winona Ryder movie. I defer. I defer to you on this one. Yeah, it sounds like a Winona Ryder movie. She she was in a lot of a lot of really boring movies that do not hold up. I'll just put that out there. David writes: Rangers lead the way, Buck. I agree. Bring back the firing squad. Painless, instantaneous. Doesn't require expensive doctors or sterile accoutrement. Yeah, David. I think a firing squad is is a much. I mean, I think it's just a much more humane and and i just think it's a better way to go if we're going to be executing people uh than lethal injection i don't like this to be a medical procedure it, it shouldn't be a medical procedure doctors doctors should in my opinion including when people want it to be this way doctors should never be in the business of killing people so and i know that gen they, they don't have people are gonna say oh buck they don't have doctors yeah but even if they don't have a doctor actually administer into the vein the various uh, concoctions, I forget what they are, that I've read about it a bunch of times, to stop someone's heart and, and to kill them, it, it feels like a medical procedure, and, and I don't think the state should be in the business of making any medical procedure that is killing anyone. And I know a lot of you are saying, but Buck, what about this and that? And there, I know there are, you know, there's a, there's a lot of medical procedures that are, are lethal, uh, most notably abortion, but nonetheless, um, I, I, don't th I think that firing squad is better. Sean writes, hello, Buck. Trump is great, and you are refreshing. But AOC is downright depressing. By the way, keep up with your action movie quotes. Sean, a real news fan from the beginning. Wow, thank you, Sean. That's really an honor that some of you guys started watching me when I was just figuring out how to do this media thing some years ago now. Oh, gosh, seven or eight years ago. And that you've stayed with me all this time and, and still believe in what I do and Look, folks, it, I, when I say this stuff, I, I mean it. It's not any false humility. The fact that as many of you listen to this show every day as you do, whether live on a radio station or on the podcast, uh, it's it's very special to me. It's very meaningful. I do miss it when I'm not doing the show, and especially given these days. I mean, I feel like everybody and their grandmother has a podcast now. It's amazing. I don't know why everybody thinks that they, 
not, not everyone thinks they're going to be a writer. You know, some people know that oh, I'm, I'm not really writing is not my thing. I have other skills. Everyone thinks they can do a podcast all of a sudden. It's not true. Radio, I would I would offer you is actually harder than than doing video and TV. So if you're just doing a podcast for all the people out there that look, some people, if it's a hobby or you just enjoy, it, that's fine. But I'm talking about everyone who thinks this is going to be a business. I'm always like, what? This person isn't interesting to talk to you for five minutes in person. I can't imagine them having a an hour or two hour long podcast. Uh, Marie writes, whoa, this is really long. Marie, I, can't, I will read this, but I cannot read it on air. Thank you so much for sending it in, though. Uh, here we go. Josh writes, Buck, what VPN do you use or endorse? I, I heard you talk about VPN on your show, but can't find your endorsement. Also, you do have a site that has all your endorsements or sponsors. I could not find one, but I think it'd be valuable. Thanks again, Captain Josh. Shields high. Well, thank you, Captain Josh. I, I, I don't know if we, I don't think we have a site where all of our sponsors are listed. That's not a bad idea, though. Maybe we could put them up on the Buck Session Show with all of our various links. I think that's, that'd be a good move. So, I'll have producer Mike is the one who makes things happen. You know, he's he's uh, he's the guy who gets things done. So I'll just put that on his plate, which is already very stacked high team. Great to be back. I'm here every day this week. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Shields high.